I'm going to need you to participate in this real quick. First of all, let me ask you this. How many of you think it's too cold in here right now? I need you to raise your hand. Don't be shy. Raise your hand if you think. Yeah, my wife, of course. Um, all right. How many of you think it's too hot in here? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you think it's just right? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. Okay. We, well, we got most of you happy anyway. All right. <laughs> now, let me ask you another question. What do you prefer? Do you, if you had seven days to go somewhere, would you rather go to the beach or the mountains or like some of both? How many of you are beach people? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are mountain people? Okay. All right. <laughs> How many of you like both? Okay, all right, all right. Let's go back to the shirt here. How many of you said you like the shirt? Thank you. How many of you hate the shirt? I got it at a clearance store on the clearance rack. What do you expect, okay? All right. Well, the reason I ask that or say that is we many times have many opinions and preferences when it comes to certain things. So would you turn to the person beside you and say, I guess we have to agree to disagree. I guess we have to agree to disagree. All right. Now, uh, today, we're continuing the series on uh, spiritual maturity. We began this part of the subpart of our series with spiritual maturity. So turn to Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14. Now, the thing we need to understand when it comes to spiritual maturity is really how we treat one another matters, it matters in everything. And so if you were to say, give me a measure of my spiritual maturity... It would come from the whole idea of how we treat one another. And many times it shows up, probably in the biggest way, how we treat those we disagree with. Okay? How we treat those we disagree with. So look at the introduction. One of the true marks of maturity is being able to agree to disagree on issues that do not require turning one's back on conviction or God's truth. This passage deals with what believers are to do when they disagree on non-moral issues, things that are not clearly discerned. Now, we have proven that the church is made up of people with all kinds of preferences. I mean, we just revealed that, right? I mean, we have all kinds of things. And, and the things that I asked you to raise your hands about were those things that weren't really that important when you really think about it. But when you look at the issues that we deem as important, sometimes we can get pretty heated when we come against those who disagree with our position, when they disagree with our agendas, when they disagree with whatever. We, we, sometimes we can get pretty heated. And we're watching a lot of that take place in our society. But how do we agree to disagree? Did you know that the first church, the first church in the first century had to deal with the issues of agreeing to disagree? So let's look here on your outline. The situation, there were disputable matters. The church at Rome was composed of believers from many different religious and cultural backgrounds who had varying opinions about what was right and what was wrong. Yet, through it all, Paul continued in most of his epistles, his letters, to say that unity was of, an, of the most importance. 
And he kept saying that. And he talked many times about how sometimes those churches were divided and how they needed to come together on things. Jesus said in John chapter 17, he said, I pray that the church will become one. Ten times in the first five chapters of Acts, it says that the church, that they were all in one accord, that they were unified. They were together on those things that mattered. And so look at your outline. The definition of disputable matters. It is an issue that the Bible is silent on or does not give a clear principle. And so there are those things that are disputable, but there are those things that should not divide us. And Paul is addressing that in the first century. So really, look on your outline. The battle really comes between preference versus principle. Those things that are preferred versus those things that are law. Now, of course, preference means that which is preferred, that which is chosen. If we were to go to, around the room and, and, and select our, fa- our favorite fast food place, some of us would say McDonald's. Others of us will say Burger King. Others, which I guarantee most of us would say Chick-fil-A. We, we have all these ideas about everything, our preference, those things that we choose. But then there's something called principle. It is basically a fundamental doctrine. It's law it's, or truth. A determining characteristic of something. And then an essence quality. It would be things like thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. And what's interesting is our society, it happened around the 70s, probably dates back to, its roots probably went back to the 60s. It used to be that most of us would agree on something we would call absolute truth. How many of you are familiar with the term absolute truth? That there's something out there that is absolute. That no matter where you cross it, no matter where you put it, there's going to be those things that are right and those things that are wrong. And that's absolute truth. And the Bible, we would say, is the absolute truth of God's word. But in the 60s, something began to take root in our society and has become full-blown even today. And it's that whole idea of relative truth. And it's the idea of what's true for you may be true of you, but what's true of me may be true of me. And we begin to to look at this whole idea of truth. and, And now, you know what truth has become? Truth has become a preference. It's it's which one do you choose? Uh, The bumper sticker that's out right now that everybody deems as fame, uh, uh, the popular one is live your truth, live your truth. And, And so it's no longer that there's an absolute where there's something right and wrong. Now we're determining what truth is. Things have really grown in our society, haven't they? Things have gotten more complicated. So there are some specific principles that we as Christians, we would say scripture is as absolute truth and that there is no argument when it comes to many things found in God's word. But there are areas in scripture of which the Bible does not clearly speak to. And those things that we're, are those things in which we begin to have conviction possibly about, or we begin to think through those things. If you were to look at the first century, look on your outline, the first century examples would have been issues of diet and days. Some of you are like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, the root of this came from the fact that back in the first century, there were many people coming to know Christ. 
The Jews, many Jews, many people don't realize this, but many Jews began to, to turn to Christ. They became Christians. They became believers. But guess what? There were many more Gentiles becoming Christians. And do you know what the Jewish people said about the Gentiles becoming Christians? They said this. They said, oh, well, wait a second now. Before you become a Christian, you need to become a Jew first. They were called the Judaizers. And they went around and they said, yeah, you need to hold fast to the idea of the Jew. And, and then you can become a Christian. It's just part of it. Paul was absolutely against this. Paul said, no, that's the old covenant. That's something that's back there. No, we, we become believers in Christ. We begin to follow Christ and his teachings. But these things were disputed almost in every community that were Jews. These things were disputed. And it created a big thrift in the, in, in the first century, or rift in the first century church. And all, there was, even the apostles were agreeing to disagree about certain matters as it related to this. So they began to say, okay, what should a Christian eat? What should, uh, when should a Christian worship? Do we worship on Saturday? We worship on Sunday. And there was all this, this debate. And Paul's basically, he's like, come on, let's get past the pettiness. Let's quit making issues out of things that are not really issues. 21st century examples. Boy, we have a lot of them. Dancing. Dancing. <laughs> okay, we'll just move on. I agree, some dancing don't need to be happening anywhere. I agree with that. Playing cards. How many of you were raised with families that believed that cards were not things Christians should. How many of you raised that? I was, I, even, that goes back to my day. And uh, you shouldn't do that. Some people would say watching TV. You realize there's some that have conviction you shouldn't drive cars. You shouldn't use electricity. That you shouldn't wear makeup. We praise God for makeup, don't we? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Every Christian has his or her list of do's and don'ts. We have them all, don't we? I mean, it's all out there. But what happens when my list doesn't match your list? And there's no clear description or no clear scriptural background to prove either one. Many times fellowship is broken, churches are split, new denominations are born because we can't agree to disagree. Because we're willing to break fellowship over anything and everything. And, and, and we got to get back to what God's word says. So what's the solution? How do we agree to disagree? Well, first of all, look there. It's acceptance. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse 1. It says, receive one who is weak in the faith. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Some of your translations say, accept one who is weak in the faith. Now, now, here's what's interesting about this phrase, weak in the faith. I went back and did a little research on what Paul could have been meaning here. And it could have been one of two things. It could be that, 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 that when he says, accept that one who is weak, it's your idea that they're weak. It's you attributing the fact that they're weak because they don't live as you live. That's an interesting idea about that phrase, isn't it? That they're weak. But many commentators would say that it's, it's basically the old idea that there are sometimes in our spiritual development that, that all of a sudden we become, um, it's either right or it's wrong. 
How many of you realize that sometimes our spiritual development mimics our physical development, our emotional development? Did you, do you realize that? How many of you realize when you're a child, everything's dictated to you, right and wrong and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, how many of you remember or have children or grandchildren around ages 12 or 13 where everything's just black and white? I mean, it's just, it's just right, totally right, totally wrong or whatever. And, and there's an aspect to our life that's totally that, true, too. But how many of you remember those times? And then as you matured, you began to see that the issues that you blew up and made matter of life and death weren't really that that important. Do you, do you remember those times? Now, you prophets who are sitting in the room, you never got over that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's that idea that there's this whole idea of right and whole idea of wrong, and you hold on to it, and, and you stop right there, and you don't give people the benefit of that, or, or you try to interpret Scripture in a way that is, is very inclusive. And we have to be very careful with those things. But look what Paul says. Receive the one that you say or possibly could look at and say is weak in the faith. Or that whole idea, that one that's holding on to those things that are creating dissensions within the body because they're holding positions that really don't matter. And he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Those things that you're making a big deal about, there aren't really a big deal. The key words in this whole chapter the key word is the first word, receive or accept. We must learn to accept or receive each other. It's in the context of this that we agree to disagree. We agree to disagree. In verse 3, this may shock you, but it says God has already accepted them. So basically it's this, where there are two or three gathered, there is a difference of opinion, and we must learn to accept one another. Here's a good one. This morning, the worship. There's some of you sitting there, and I know I've heard, I've heard you talk. I have my own preferences. I know exactly what you're talking about. We need to do more hymns. Some of you say, amen, amen. <laughs> we need to sing more praise music. We need to, but let's introduce some things that we haven't considered. How about a little bluegrass? I love some good bluegrass. Why, isn't, why aren't we singing bluegrass around here? <laughs> some of you. West Virginia, Kentucky, any of you? No, I'm just kidding. Mountains of North Carolina. No. Anyway, but we, we get into this idea that there's things, and, we, we, and, and believe me, churches are being split all over the place with worship. Can I tell you what's so ironic about that? Who is worship directed to? God. And we get into all this and it's like, I don't know. Listen, I think it's sad. I think our church has really matured through some processes over the years. I really have. And I brag on our church all the time. And I know we have our preferences. But do you realize churches right now are being torn slap apart? Because of these things. And worship's directed towards God. It's not about us. It's about Him. So what does it mean to accept one another? By not rejecting another simply because you disagree with them. We can never have, and Paul's saying this, it can never become, when it comes to these disputable matters, it can never become us against them. 
How many of you agree we live in a society in which we're very divisive right now and the chasm seems greater than it's ever been before? We live in that world. And we as Christians need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap that our society's falling into and vilifying those who disagree with us and, and to the point that there's even death threats on people's lives. The whole matter of legalism in the church does just as much damage as blatant sin in the church. We must be careful by what we choose to break fellowship over. And you know why? Because the stakes are too high. We've been given a mandate. We've been told to, that Jesus prayed in that famous prayer in John that, that the church would be unified. Over and over again, we see the theme of the first century church that they were unified. They were unified. And, and that's the reason it had such a big impact on our society. So how, what are ways that we can do to accept those who disagree with us? Number one, you're not going to like this one. Don't label them. I'm just as guilty as anyone in this room with labels. How many of you could say the same? Bunch of liberals is what they are. What do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? I mean, none of us would say, bunch of conservatives. <laughs> That's a label. You know what I'm saying? We, we got to be careful with this stuff. I, re I remember the talk of, uh, they must be a commie. Communists, for those who don't know what that means. Communists. I mean, that was, that was the intention. They're progressives. Now, now we don't like the title, so what do we change the label? What do we do? We change the label, don't we? Even liberals don't like the liberal title. They changed it to progressive. <laughs> and you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just all this talk out there and all these different things. Someone has said that labeling someone, this is so true, y'all. Labeling someone is the lowest form of judging people. Because you, you put them all in one group and you put the stamp. And if you agree with them, you put the stamp of agreement. If you disagree with them, put the stamp of disagreement. We as Christians are not called to think that way. We are challenged to, to look at what God's word says and to, to be discerning and be wise when it comes to the matters that we deal with and not do that. Look at people as individuals is what we're called to do. Paul basically is here. He's, at, he's implying that there are two groups. There's the strong and then there's the weak. Now keep in mind in this passage that both are Christians. He, he's not comparing lost person with saved person here, he's basically saying these are Christians who appear to be sincere. There are some who may be a little immature, those who may be a little more mature. But listen, he's not talking about people who are outside the church versus those who are inside the church. He's talking about both groups being inside the church. You, do you see that here? We've got to be careful. Romans 14 Look at verse 1 again. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but, but not to, dis, to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all, the, all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. <laughs> you, in our culture, what would it be? The strong, the disciplined, they eat the vegetables. I respect anybody who's a vegetarian. I don't know how you people do it. I really don't. I mean, good steak and something. I mean, great day. Bless your heart. You, you, you're just losing out. It's the way I see it. But 
But anyway, he, he's, he's basically throwing up these ideas. Those who eat meat, you're a bunch of sinners. Those who eat vegetables are sinners. I mean, they were coming against one another. We've got to be careful. The weak, the immature, were extremely sensitive and judgmental. The weak tended to feel guilty over things that the, the Bible really doesn't prohibit. Today, some people would call these the legalists. And again, that's a labeling term, but that's kind of where it goes. And, and, and when you look at the word weak in Romans, he, he could be talking about this whole idea. One who makes rules when there are no rules. Have you ever been a part of that? I remember sitting in the independent Baptist church my grandparents went. My poor dad. How many of you remember the 70s, the styles, the, the, the hair sometimes went below the, the earlobes? Well, that particular pastor said that man need to reveal ear. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Did you, your, your hair need to be cut above your ears. And, 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 and I mean, it's like every time my dad showed up, he's preaching against hair. Some of you are sitting here, yeah. Gee, I know it's petty, but that's the things we divide over. It's stupid. And, and we got to be careful. Did you know Satan was the first legalist? <laughs> he was. Listen to what he said in Genesis chapter 3. He said, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No, he said the one in the middle of the garden. Even Eve had enough sense to correct his theology. He said, no, 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 it's this tree, this one in the middle, not all of them. But what did the enemy do? He tilted God's word a little bit and said, all the trees. First legalist we see in the scriptures was Satan. All of it. He was making a law when there was no law there. And we got to be careful with this. Legalism, listen, is when I take my God-given convictions and force them on you without scriptural support. They would say this, believe as I believe, feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look only as I do and, uh, and only as I look for then and only then will I have fellowship with you. Jesus had more trouble with the legalists than anyone else in scripture. Did you know that? Can, can I tell you why, it was so, why, why we know he had a hard time with them? It's because when he showed up, and if you read the scripture, they accused him of breaking the law. Do you remember that? How many of you look at that and think, boy, there's a contradiction. We got the religious. They must know something. The Messiah, who lived the perfect life, became the sacrifice for all man. How is it that he's breaking the law? He wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking their law. They were the ones that were adding to they were the ones that were holding people in bondage. They were the ones who would break fellowship at the drop of a hat about anything and everything. They were creating, listen, they were creating God's truth in their own image. And then when the true image of God showed up, they didn't even recognize him. We're capable of doing the same thing. Another way to accept those who disagree with you is do not judge them. Some of you are like, man, I got this all wrong. Hey, trust me, I've been, I'm there too. I'm, I'm, I'm having to learn this stuff myself. Romans 14, 3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. 
and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Now, how many of you are going to have to read that five times to get it? It is a fact that when we are strong in a certain area, we have a tendency to look down on the person who's not convicted in that same area. I hear so many people say, yeah, we're not supposed to judge, but can we be fruit inspectors? Can, can we at least? Yeah, there might be something to that. I mean, you, how does the Bible say it? It says you'll know them how? By their fruit. But this is not talking about this long list that we're creating and, and splitting people. and We just got to be careful. It's wrong to judge someone from a position of feeling of superiority. How many of you have ever had this thought? Well, at least I'm not like them. I got my faults. I admit that, God. But what? At least I'm not like them. We got to be careful. We're setting ourselves up for a fall. Did you know that a majority of those who, <laughs> got to be careful with this label, who you could identify as legalists, many of them are the ones who fall? You say, why is that? It's because they set up unrealistic expectations. They can't keep what they're preaching themselves. Another way to accept those who disagree with you is don't try to change them. <laughs> Some of you, are, I know what you're thinking, because when, when I began to look at this, and I began to see what Paul's instructing us here. I'm sitting here thinking, this seems to be working against everything I think I believe. <laughs> But, but don't try to change. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? Do you, you, you see what he's saying? That we're all servants of God, right? You're not my servants. I'm not your servant. We're servants of God. Who am I to judge another person's servant? Paul's saying we're all servants. Who are you to judge his servants? To his own master, he stands or falls. He's only accountable to his master, his God. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. The favorite indoor sport of a lot of Christians is trying to change other people when only God can change the heart. God changes people. How does he do it? He does it through the Word and through the Holy Spirit. Now, ladies... I've never heard a man say this to me. I am a different man because my wife knows how to nag like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> that woman, let me just tell you, I was a broken man after she nagged me so much. It doesn't happen that way. How many of you ladies know that? He's stubborn. He's hard-headed. I've tried my best. It's only a work of God. Sometimes we need to allow this to stop and get on our knees and pray for the one that can stop it or fix it or change him. And men, we got our own issues, trust me. At least they know where it should look, what it should look like. <laughs> We just got to be careful. We, got, we, we can't take on the roles that we're not intended to take on. Reasons to accept those who disagree with you. How do you get there? God has already accepted them. 
Again, this is not people outside the church. And he's not making a distinction between the, the believer and the unbeliever. He's talking about everybody in the church. It says in verse 3, For God has received him or her. He's accepted them. In Romans 15, 7, it says this, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us. So if God can, can accept us and receive us with our hang-ups, hang, hang don't you think we should be able to, to accept others with theirs? You get it? Boy, it is quiet in here. Next, it's not your responsibility to judge. Again, this is kind of overlapping, but look at verse 4 again. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. It's God that's going to create the change that needs to be changed in that person. Only God has the right to judge people, and we're not God. It is not our responsibility to judge others on non-moral issues. I've got to trust the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this. I think there could be a caveat to this. I believe there are people in our lives that God has placed us to have authority over that person. You know what I'm talking about? Parents have authority over children. And I think there are times where we have to speak into their life. We do. It's there. It's a part of it. He's ordained certain things around us that have authority over us. And yes, they have the right because it's ordained of God to speak those things into our lives. But we have to be careful how far we carry these things. Here's another one. Reason to accept those who disagree with you. You do not know their motives. None of us know the inner workings of another human being. Look what he says in verse 5. One person esteems one day above the other. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced how? In his own mind. In his own mind. That means I can't... I can't judge. I don't know your motives. I don't know why you have the conviction you have. I don't know why you live your life in such a way that you live your life. But I can't go judge that. I've got to be careful how I look at that. Number six, or verse six, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. This is something between you and God. This is something he's placed within you. And if there's a conviction within you that's not clearly, out, that's not clearly in scripture and this conviction that you hold and you know you need that more than anything and this is something you're doing as unto the Lord, be careful what you expect of other people with that. You gotta be careful. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. They've chosen not to do it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. He's basically saying, listen, we're going to make up the church. We have all our preferences. We have all our differences. We have all our backgrounds. Our faith lived out maybe a little different than the next person beside us lives out their faith. And you know something he's saying, unless it's a moral issue, unless it's a thou shall not do or thou shall do, then you need to be careful how you judge that. And we're talking about disputable matters. Aren't you glad? Listen to this statement. I think you'll agree with me. Aren't you glad that your rewards in heaven are not based on what other people think of you? Only God sees the heart. Only God knows the motive. I don't know your motive. Even, listen, even when you do it right, I still don't know your motive. 
When you do it wrong, I don't Even when you're doing the very thing. If you're out here, listen, and you, you're one of these people in our church that just steps up every time we turn around, yes, I'll do that. that. The church needs me right here in this issue. I'm right there. I can't even judge whether that's good or bad. I can encourage you in the right direction, but you may be doing all that for the wrong reason. You may, you may be doing that because you want other people to be impressed with you, not because you want to impress the heart of God, not because you want to worship him through you serving him. I don't even know that part. You, we don't know that about each other. Reason to accept those who disagree with you. You have a bond with each other. Verse 7 for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. Paul was saying we are all in the body of Christ. Therefore, to judge you is to judge myself. No man is an island unto himself. He's basically saying all believers are interrelated. Interrelated. Some of you pull for NC State. Some of you pull for Duke. I don't know how, but some of you do. Right? Right? I won't bring up my team because I don't want any judgment up here. But anyway, I'm not going to break fellowship with Pete because he pulls for Duke. I might think badly of him, but I'm not going to break fellowship. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to break fellowship over stupid stuff. Another reason to agree with those who dis. Accept those who disagree with you. Only Christ has a right to judge. Look at verse 8. For if we live, how do we live, y'all? We live it to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. We are accountable to him. Another reason to accept those who disagree with you. You are only accountable for yourself. Look at verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now when he says the judgment seat of Christ, he's not talking about the judgment of unbelievers. You get that right? He's talking about the judgment of those who are believers. And we will stand and we will give an account. For how we lived our life for him. What we did for him. What we did on his behalf. We had the ability to have rewards. But what he's saying here is this. We're not going to be the one that judge nor gives rewards based on what we see. Only he sees the heart. Only can he look at it and discern what needs to be done. For it is. And, then, and here's what's interesting. Here it is. For verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to whom? God. I'm the pastor of this church. I don't know why he's so choose. I, I, there's so many times I just feel so under, over, overwhelmed that he would allow me to hold this position and I don't take it lightly. I'm here to tell you, you're accountable to him. I can advise you this morning, but hopefully you understand I'm not advising from my own point of view. I'm advising you how? From the word of God. Hopefully the very words of God are the things that I'm holding up in front of you this morning. It's not me holding you accountable. It's the word of God holding you accountable. And if I'm true to the word of God, that's God holding you accountable. 
I love this. <laughs> One day, Peter was talking to Jesus, and Jesus foretold that Peter would die a martyr's death. Y'all remember this story? Peter turns around and says, well, what about him, Lord? You know who he was, you know who he was pointing to? John. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, Peter, and I got a feeling Jesus is thinking it like this. Peter, you're going to have the special honor to dine for me. Peter's not sitting there saying, man, Lord, it would be a great honor to die on your behalf. What does he do? What about him? <laughs> you know what Jesus said? Paraphrase. None of your business, Peter. None of your business. It's going to play out differently for him. Best we can tell, John died in exile. And some people even believe he was released. So he didn't die for the faith like Peter did. But Peter was all worried about who? You laugh at this, but we did the same thing. Lord, what about them? Boy, you nailed me on this. Why aren't you nailing them? Get them, God. Another reason to accept those who disagree with you, you're not to be a stumbling block. Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. He's saying work this out. Guess what? For it to be worked out, it's got to first start being worked out in my own mind. I got to fear and tremble over my own salvation, over the work God's doing in my own life. I got to focus on that, but what do we do? We focus on the people around us. What about them? Look at them, huh? Not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. The direction here is not becoming a stumbling block. Paul said this in, another, in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, if what I eat causes my brother to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Paul took it very seriously that maybe all things are lawful for him, all things are permissible for him, but he was always aware that other people were watching. And that's healthy for us to understand that we are not called to be the one that's sitting around watching and looking and trying to help God identify the sinners. That we hold firm to ourselves and that when we look around, we're looking to not be a stumbling block to those around us. We do need to keep that matter in perspective. And Paul says that. In conclusion, Paul is trying to say that one of the real keys of unity in the church is being able to agree to disagree agreeably. To feel that we all have to agree on everything is unrealistic. It'll never happen. My wife and I have been called to become one in Christ. Guess what? She doesn't agree with me on a lot of stuff. I don't agree with her on a lot of stuff. But there's times we're called to disagree agreeably. And guess what? That's been a hard work in our marriage to do. Because what do we do? We state our opinion. <laughs> we protect our opinion. We have a right to our opinion. You can be wrong if you want to be. And she's finally coming around to my side. <laughs> no. Application, unity is a priority in the church. To agree to disagree and still love and accept each other is a mark of maturity. 
we need some maturity, don't we? I want to close with this. We must be careful disagreeing as our society does. Y'all, we're living in a day where we're, we've never, I don't know, at least since I've been born, we've, we've never been more divided than where we are today. As a country, uh, as churches, as churches dealing with issues, we never, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen this, but here, we can't disagree like the world does. We can't disagree like news stations do and people that we respect many times. But here's how we disagree today, and we got to be careful not to follow this. We disagree. Here's how we do it. By identifying those who are against what we believe or those against our agendas. Once we've identified them, our world declares them evil or they vilify them. And then many times they'll do whatever it takes, lie, cheat, or anything else to destroy them. We're watching that play out right now. And I'm not even talking about who you may think is right or wrong or who you believe or who you don't believe. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about what we're seeing play out right in front of us right now. We've got to be careful. Even when we discern what is right and we're holding to what's right, we're not called to vilify. We're not called to destroy someone. We're called to live what we just read here. God's word supersedes anything or any other structure that we live under. And we need to realize that. Even when we're right. Even when we're dead right. We need to know how to agree to disagree agreeably. Still hold principle. I'm not, not once have you told me to back down from principle. But even that, you got to know how to deal with that too, don't you? Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now. And we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I thank you how Paul has put this letter together. He begins with that whole idea that we're all sinners. There's no, none righteous, no, not one. For we all have missed the mark. Then, Father, we follows it up by the greatest news the world's ever heard in chapters 4 through 8. That whole idea that we're under his grace. And that he made a provision to allow us to walk out from under our sin by trusting him. And then, Father, he doesn't end there. He begins to make his way to chapter 12. And he begins to, to give us the practicalities of how we're to live our life. Even how we're to live our lives among others in the church. And, Father, I just thank you for such a wonderful church. Lord, I love this place. I'm more excited about what you're doing here than any time I've ever been in, in the last 28 years here. I just see you moving I see you moving on the hearts of your people. I thank you, Lord, that we've, there's been so many different things that have happened over, especially the last 10 years, that, that could destroy a church. Destroy it. But Father, I thank you for the maturity that we have in this room, that, that, Lord, our leadership, our pastors, and it's not that we're insensitive. We're sensitive. We try to do where we believe you're leading, and you've led us down some incredible paths, things that seem so different than what we once were. And yet here we are still standing, able to minister to over 200 children and teenagers every week able to invest in marriages that many churches have given up on when it comes to, to young people, young marriages, Father. I thank you that we've had enough maturity to say, hey, this is what's working. This is what God is doing. 
And we're trying our best to get there. I thank you that I pastor a church that for the most part can agree to disagree agreeably. Thank you for it, Father. Father, I pray if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, and maybe you've convicted them about that, and maybe they were, are looking for answers to, 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 to what life is really all about, I pray you bring them forward this morning. Maybe there's a Christian that's here, and maybe they've bought into the way the world's dealing with disputes and differences, and, and, and they've, maybe they've reacted ungod, ungodly, maybe not out visibly, but maybe in their hearts, maybe in their mind. Help us to realize Lord, that you've called us to, to, to a, greater, a greater sense of awareness of who we are in you than who we are as it relates to what we see around us. Father, have your way in, in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with us this morning?